You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Privilege to take up the Word of God and to consider in detail the, uh, the life of Yahweh's servant Joseph. Um, and it really, again, is extraordinary the way that Yahweh has revealed his truth, that through do- deeper inspection of the things that he has written, we find enormous amount of, ex- of doctrine. And that, of course, is the focus here. And as our brother read for us, the whole principle of the Abrahamic covenant, which will play a part in this, being established in the first part of those verses. And then the man, Joseph, who was sold for a servant, and the word of Yahweh tried him. He was put in prison, loosed. He made him Lord of his house, ruler of all of substance. And then it's there that Israel came into Egypt. And that's important because you'll remember in, well, the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham is told this in, in Genesis 15, and then it's referred to again in uh, Genesis 46, it's there that he made them a great nation. And it's there that he increased his people greatly. And you get that in Exodus, don't you? You get the first, uh, after Joseph is put into prison and exalted in the period of the Gentiles now, rejected by his own brethren, that's when they become a great nation. Look at the doctrinal significance there. And his name means that. And that's why he was named Joseph. Yahweh shall add to me another son, and it means increaser. Yahweh shall increase. So the psalmist account of this life represents the doctrinal teaching of how Yahweh is going to increase Israel into a great nation. He's doing it doctrinally. His word tried Joseph as the one that was going to fulfill that prophetic purpose. So that's why we scrutinize his life by the overview of his life of what's recorded there in, I mean, hold on. Of course, the details of Genesis 37 through the rest of the book, but what at least the synopsis is given to us there in Psalm 105 that Brother David read for us this morning. Probably should clarify that. So this man's rejected of his brethren, and that's how Yahweh increased his people, and it became a great nation. It's through this process. So we look at this detailed life of this man's life as a suffering servant and exalted ruler, as a revealing of the doctrine, you tried him through his word. That's how the word in the Abrahamic covenant, as we read here, is going to be sealed. And so when we look at the details of all this, brothers and sisters, that's where we find all these remarkable things. And of course, we've quoted this before in our very introductory classes, where Brother Thomas refers to the transactions in the life of Abraham offering up his son. He said, yeah, they were real, of course. But they were also parabolic or figurative of something else. And that's the sacrifice of a seed, Christ. He says, after the death of Isaac, when Jacob is waxed old, now that's important, near the very end of Israel's kingdom, under the rulership of the period of the kingdom of God, is when Christ appeared on the scene. Joseph was selected from all his sons by the arrangements of God to be the typical representative of the future seed through whom the promises were to take effect. So, he says, the life of Joseph becomes a living parable, 
by which was represented to Jacob and his sons and the believers afterwards what was to be transacted in the life of Christ. The story of Joseph in itself is interesting and moving. Of course it is. But when we read that story, as if we were reading Christ instead of him, the narration assumes an importance which highly commends itself to the student of the word. And that's what the basis of all these studies is all about, brothers and sisters. And I, we said this last week in our conversation. Joseph is never called the type of Christ. Never called a figure. It's never called a parable. Yet we know it is to be based on the premise of scriptural reasoning. So doctrine is required to comprehend this. And in turn, when we read this as Christ, instead of just the man Joseph, acknowledging he was a real man in a real situation, it also strengthens doctrine. So doctrine is the point that we bring out. I mentioned last week in our conversation that uh, a brother not knowing an elder brother greatly assisted me in the study. I would just ask him doctrinal questions. You'll see how that plays out. So we looked at the life of, and you can see it chronologically. <clears throat> the father exalts uh, Joseph. I'm sorry. The father's, I screamed there a bit. And the brothers reject him. So one who the father rejects, sold by Judah. And then, and it's not by accident. We have this chapter of judgment upon Judah that also is talking about the right of the firstborn. And we won't have time to get to that. I've provided notes. And they're largely based on the expositor. And if you want to go back um, and look at it somewhere uh, available, um, Brother Jim Cowie has an excellent study on Genesis 38. He sold to the Gentiles. He's cast into prison. The wine and the bread join him there, butler and the baker. He's then exalted. He prospers among the Gentiles. Then he manipulates the sons of Jacob. And they don't know it. They think he's been crucified. He's dead. Judah ultimately leads the brethren back. The silver cup is placed in the hands of Benjamin, the son of the right hand. So they now go all the way back and they start remembering what they did to Joseph. And this is his brother, by the way. He reveals himself to his brethren, and Acts 7 says he revealed himself the second time, which is what Christ will do. He then sends Judah to gather the rest of Israel who's outside the land. Notice the prophecy involved here. They are then settled in the best of the land, just like the kingdom age. He blesses Ephraim. He sets the establishment of the firstborn, the prophecy of the 12 sons of Jacob. We won't go into that. Brother Thomas has a section, and frankly, my knowledge is very limited to that. Then the life of Joseph and Israel ends. They're buried in the land. So it's an overview. You can see the doctrine. You can see it. And we'll go through it in detail, God willing. <clears throat> so verse 1 says Jacob, and it's interesting where Jacob and Israel are interchanged. Jacob, as you and I know, is a name that refers to the natural man, even Israel in its prophetic sense after the flesh, and Israel after the spirit. We know how that's interchanged prophetically in the scriptures. He dwells in the land wherein his father was a stranger, the land of Canaan. That's not an insignificant statement. It's used of Abraham, of the land that he never inherited. 
So that's why when Brother David read Psalm 105, verse 7, and it starts with the Abrahamic covenant, and it leads down to the man who was sold to be a servant, exalted to be ruler, increased the people to a great nation. This is all playing into what we are introduced to this man in this opening statement. There's strangers in the land. And then that is interrupted. Christ, just like Joseph, came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And it says in verse 37, the generations of Jacob, Joseph? Why Joseph? He's far from the oldest. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. It seems completely out of whack if we are reading a book nearly about, merely about the natural man. And we're told what he's doing. He's 17, feeding the flock with his brethren. But the sons that he's associated with are sons of bondwomen. You know the allegory of Hagar and Sarah. It's Bilhah and Zilpah. They're handmaidens. They're not true sons in the prophetic sense of that. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So he's a mediator. He's with the sons of the handmaids, the bondwomen, which are accounted as those that are born after the flesh in the allegory of Galatians 4. Very simple scriptural reasoning to this point. And this is what John Carter says in the Oracles of God. <clears throat> Excuse me, brethren, I've pointed this out many times. And I've said it many times, and I'll say it again. I firmly believe this is how we reason from the scriptures early on in our community. And not deliberately. Ecclesias grew. Fraternal events grew. Big gatherings grew. There were even Christadelphian schools introduced. There were Christadelphian bodies organized to handle certain things. And we started dealing with issues more than we did exposition, I believe. That's completely my opinion, but I believe that is what's happened. If you go back into our works, they constantly talk about the need from our pioneer days to expound the truth after allegory and type. Take all the history. Here, John Carter does it. He says you take, for example, the book of Genesis. It takes us through a series of selections of the generations of Jacob, to which point, with the exception of one chapter, the history is about the story of Joseph. What governed the selection of Joseph as a subject of the selection? The book of Genesis. The answer is to be found in the fact Joseph alone of Jacob's sons was a type of Christ. Where did Brother John Carter get that? Never says it. It's scriptural reasoning. And it's embedded everywhere. It's to him that all the divine history leads. This is the one son whose life is recorded in detail. The history is thus seen to be written with Messiah in view. A view that involves a knowledge of things in the future as well as the things of the past. And that's how the brethren of old used to expound the scriptures. why I quote them often. It's a little bit different than, yes, there are exhortations to be found all throughout in the life of Joseph. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying to the forefront and the foremost, I don't believe that's how we expounded the truth 
in the former days from our very beginning as a community. Stranger in the land, we've already talked about that. Here's a, some notes for your own, you, you don't need this reproving to you. So the generations of Jacob Joseph, the previous chapter, oddly enough, is all about the sons of Esau, the son of the flesh, the red son, the first natural son, the son not of the spirit or of the flesh. And we know all the things that come out of him. Amalek's one of them. The things that come out of the list of the genealogies of the man of the flesh. But here now we have a single man who is not after the flesh that's going to restore his brethren. And this is quite a long process, just like Bible prophecy is, of how he's going to do that. Just notice the doctrine so far that we've talked about here. He's feeding the flock. That's the duty for which he has sent. He is feeding the flock with two brothers that are really brothers of handmaids. So the unfaithful shepherds are the evil report that he brought into his father. And the flock of Yahweh's pasture are men, he tells us in Ezekiel 34. So we know all about this. Here's a good shepherd and shepherds that are not good. He's a mediator bringing the report to his father. And the generations are listed only in particular cases in the Bible. It appears three other, three other times outside of the Genesis record. And that is Moses and Aaron. We know the significance. The significance in the book of Ruth leading to David. And the last time that it's listed, these are the book of the generations Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, Matthew 1, verse 1. So here's the significance of it, brothers and sisters. The book of the generations, and the last time that it appears, is concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the book of the generations that are referred to of Jacob, one man, Joseph. Joseph is the one. So we're fixed on his life. And we know the story of how he's going to restore these people. And he brings evil report to his father of their shepherding. But yet Israel, Israel, talking about spiritual things now, loved Joseph more than all his children. What is the basis of love? It's obedience. Scriptures, for this reason, my father loves me. I keep my commandments. If you love me. You will keep my commandments, he says in scripture. Obedience is the defining point of love. Those that love Yahweh and keep his commandments, Deuteronomy, even you and I. He was the son of his old age. He came long in the history of Israel. A matter of fact, politically speaking, at its very end, because after his death, the daily sacrifice in the holy place was taken away ultimately by the Romans in AD 70. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on the scene. So that he's wearing this coat of many colors. And you'll know that alternative references have the long robe, which means it was the one of the priestly garment, the one that was given for the status of the firstborn. Very easy to prove. The references are there for you to look up. So this is the garment for the firstborn, the one appointed. His father made him a coat of many colors. It's an appointment by the father. Here's the doctrine, brothers and sisters. What is the appointment of the doctrine of the firstborn? 
we already talked about the generations. The generations of Adam, the last time it appears is Christ. It's the generations of the people that are going to continue the seed. It is the firstborn that's going to continue the seed. And the firstborn was given by selection of the father. And it tells us that in 1 Chronicles 5. Sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for though he was the firstborn, he defiled his father's bedright, so his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. The genealogy was reckoned after the birthright, not reckoned after the birthright, sorry. Judah prevailed among his brethren and became the chief ruler. The birthright is Joseph's. So we're told that. This position of firstborn is given to the man who supplants, who is more worthy of it. And you find this in many places. Their father had given them great gifts of gold, precious things, but the kingdom he gave to Joram because he was the firstborn. So the kingdom and the priesthood is given to the firstborn. And so it says in Psalm 89, speaking of Christ prophetically, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. It is a position that will rule over all countries. My covenant will stand fast with him, and I will make it endure forever. So this is an eternal thing. So when it talks about Christ being the firstborn from the dead, and all preeminence above all things, God giving him all things in heaven and earth, all powers, all dominions, all rulership to his firstborn, we are talking about a position of Joseph it's no wonder they hated him. His brethren know he's endorsed by the father. So you add to that, they saw that their father loved him more than all the brethren and they hated him and they could not speak peaceably. And why? Because their own works were evil. We already got that in verse two. And their brother's righteous. It's why people hate him. If they see someone else, really living the truth and desiring it and dedicated to it. And they know that they believe it, but are not really that in, in, inclined to have that sort of affection for it. You add to that in verse five, he's now a prophet. He dreams dreams and they hate him yet the more. And you know, the proof of dreams, you're all throughout the old Testament scriptures. It's by those means that a prophet is known. And what was the test of a prophet? Whether he spoke Yahweh's words in truth. Christ said that. I only speak the words. You may hate me, but I only speak the words. Is this that great prophet? Is this the prophet that Moses said would come? So on and so forth. He only spoke what the father told him to speak. And he said, I dreamed a dream. We were binding sheaves. My sheaf arose, stood upright. Your sheeps stood round about made obeisance. Oh, are you saying you'll reign over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and his words. We know what the sheaf is, brothers and sisters. It is the harvest of the first fruits. He was the first fruits to rise from the dead. And notice what happens after this. This is the earthy. This is him rising up above them and then bowing down through the resurrection of the dead. He dreams again, and this is one of the constellations. 
it's the sun and the moon and the 11 stars that make obedience to it. His brethren envy him, his father observed the same. Now, this is important. This is very, very important, brothers and sisters, because this now is a position of glorification, not just the resurrection of the dead. And we're told that in 1 Corinthians. When it talks about the glorification of Christ and then ultimately the saints, the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars, all the things that are mentioned here. And you notice something that happens? He's giving them a prophetic dream by symbols. And this, by the way, is not from me. It's Brother Thomas. And they interpret them. And Brother Thomas says that. It's the first examples of symbolic prophecy. And they understood them as clearly as if he were speaking to them in literal, literal words. Because people that speak spiritual language interpret spiritual language. They didn't say, hold on, what do you mean about the sheaves? Whoa, hold on, what are you talking about? The moon and the stars and the all bound. They knew exactly what he meant by that. So spiritual language is biblical language. And it's understood and interpreted by people that understand what the Bible is saying. And Brother Thomas' point is excellent in Alpha's Israel. It's the first occasion that we have of this. And they knew exactly what he was saying. There's no need for interpretation. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And you know what Shechem is. It's when their inheritance was confirmed to Abraham. It is in a very significant place where Joshua assembled the 12 tribes to remind them that Abraham removed from his idolatrous ancestors to worship God in this place. So Israel, notice again, Israel said to Joseph, do not thy brethren feed the flock at Shechem, do they? Are they there when he arrives? They're not. So now he's sent by the father. I will send thee unto them. And he said, here am I. He's a man that is sent by the father to see how his brethren feed the flock in Shechem. A most significant place, as Brother Perce Mansfield points out in the expositor here. It's one of the places that was appointed for the city of refuge. It's the burden bearer. And he said unto them, go, I pray thee, see whether they be well with our brethren and well with the flocks and bring me word again. Here's the mediator principle again. And he sends him out from the vale of Hebron. You know the significance of that. And it actually means to unite in fellowship. And he comes to Shechem. A certain man finds him when he's wandering in a field. And a man asked and said, what do you seek? And he says, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. Now, brethren... Several brethren have pointed out that this is likely an angel that is not mentioned by an angel. I think that is absolutely most likely. But the point is that he's uh, directed by another man of the spirit of where they are. And this man knows where they are too. Because spiritual men know carnal things and they know spiritual things. And he's wandering in the field. And the Lord Jesus Christ said in the parable, and he uses the field in many cases, where he says the field is the world. And you know he's talking about the arrangement of the Jews at that particular time, which is styled, Brother Thomas talks about this, 
especially in the covenant of the Holy Land, sealing of the covenant of the Holy Land, the cosmos, the arrangements of things then, when he went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they're going about here, and Joseph is seeking to find them, and the man says, they're not here. They departed. They went to Dothan. They left Shechem. Joseph is sent out from Hebron, and they left off, and they went to the place in Dothan, and that's where he finds them. And it's a place that is called Two Wells. And by the way, the Law and the Prophets, they're dry, because they, we know what happens when he throws them into one of these places. It's dry. There's no water in the world. They left the Abrahamic covenant. How many times did Christ say that? You'll see many come from east, west, north, and south, sit down, ye yourselves cast out. John's baptizing. He says, don't think to say within yourself, we have Abraham to our father. You bring forth fruit, meats for repentance. Christ engages them in John 8. You're not the children of Abraham. You do the works of Abraham. We have one father, even Abraham. You long departed from Abraham. You long departed from Abraham. And they weren't there when he went to find them sent by the Father to find them in a particular place. They've left off from the Abrahamic covenant. Remember what Brother David read for us. The context of leading up to Joseph, the increaser, to make them a great nation. It starts in verse 7 of Psalm 105 about the Abrahamic covenant. Remember Genesis 37, verse 1, the very beginning of that chapter, when we're introduced to Joseph, Jacob dwelt in the land like a stranger, just like his fathers did. Now, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. They long left off the Abrahamic covenant. And I dare say, brothers and sisters, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to talk to a Christadelphian that already knows it. Oh, we've been Christadelphians for four or five, 75 generations. We already know it. You know what it's like. I know, but I think maybe we left some principles of the truth along the way. Oh, come on. We've been Christadelphians for 150 plus years. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just getting rowdy about nothing. They saw him afar off. And all of Israel was in expectation and they knew Messiah was appearing nigh. They knew it. They knew it. The Gentile powers knew it. Even before he came to them, they conspired to slay him. And that's exactly what they did with Christ. They knew he would speak in a different manner to take away their place and their nation. You start reading this early on in the life of Christ, brothers and sisters. When they begin to seek to lay hands on him. Just go back in the gospel records. And they sought to trick him in his words. And they sought to lay hands on him, but for fear of the people, they didn't. It is very early on in his ministry when they begin to plot against him. Let us slay him and cast him into, and the RSV, and I think the NIV, and some other translations have this correctly as one of the pits. They're not talking about one of the pits of Dothan that was dry, that they left off from 
all the wells that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Read the accounts of the wells of the patriarchs. Why possibly was it dry? The accounts of the wells, even Moses, when he gathers the bride, meets him at the well. Even when finding a bride for Abraham's son, meets her at the well. The place of water is very significant. The bride of Moses is gone. Why is it dry? The word of God is gone. Let's cast him into one of these pits. And you know, brothers and sisters, we've talked about this in other cases. You know it with the prophet Jeremiah. The pit is called the grave at least three times in the Psalms. You know it is called the same in Jeremiah. And we will see what will become of his dreams. They mock him, just like the Jews did when he hung upon the tree. Ah, which, by the way, this is quite an indictment. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. Oh, you admit he saved others. Oh, hold on. You admit he saved others? Quite an indictment. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren. They stripped him out of his coat of many colors that was on him. Who put it there? They tried to divest him of the honor that his father gave him. That's why Christ said, I am sent of the Father. I speak the words of my Father. The miracles that I do are of the Father. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father that sent him. There can be no disconnection between the two. To wound the Son is to wound the Father. To reject him is to reject the Father. Who put the garment upon him? He didn't anoint himself. He didn't speak his own words. He did not exalt himself. And they took him, they cast him into one of the pits that was empty. There's no, we know what water represents. It's used seven times pit. It's a complete thing. This is a grave of a sinless man. There is no water in it. Their crucifixion has no motivation to the word. Because if they truly had integrity for the father, they would have loved the son. Christ says that. You would love me if you loved the Father. If you truly love the Father, and think about that with brethren, and I'm not speaking to myself, you know brethren that really care about the truth, that are not very well embraced by the brotherhood. And you think, you know, if they really love the truth, they'd love that brother. Because he loves the truth. He is all in. He is all in on the truth. And they can hardly stand him. You think of Christ. If you really cared about the integrity of Yahweh, this man never talks about himself. He never says that work is done. There's never a little smirk of pride in his own accomplishments. Everything he did was a father. If you truly love the father, you just said, there's nobody like him. I mean, you have to love him. You gotta love that man. Proving they didn't really care for Yahweh. And they sat down to eat bread as they sat down and watched his crucifixion. They lift up their eyes and they look and a company of who is Ishmael, brethren? Who does the allegory of Galatians chapter four say that Ishmael is? 
was not Isaac. And he came with the symbols of sacrifice, the spices, balm, and myrrh, to carry it down to Egypt. This is the seed according to the flesh. So what Christ said in John 8 is true. You goeth about to kill me. You are not the children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to any man. Christ said, you're in bondage and you go about to seek me. You're the children of the bond woman. Hagar. And you seek to kill me. So whatever they're doing is worldly to carry down into Egypt. But whatever they're doing is going to benefit the Gentiles. This is all under the hand of the Jews, brothers and sisters. This crucif unjust crucifixion of this man is going to bring him to the land of the Gentiles. And they came from Gilead. And it's called the balm of Gilead in Jeremiah 8.22. Their crucifixion is actually going to have a healing effect. And Judah, just like Judas Iscariot, is the one that says, what's a prophet if we slay him? We can seal our brother. Let's make some money in the process. It's where the term Jew comes from. And the byword of Jews like to make a lot of money. Look at it sometimes. Just look at it in history. It's where that term Jew came from. Judas. And the Jews love money. It actually came from Judas Iscariot. And who were the Jews? And this is another instance, brothers and sisters, where I asked an elder brother, I said, what does Judah represent prophetically? No, not a blink of a moment. He said it represents the Jews in the land. And he gave me a host of references. We'll detail this more and later. Here are a couple of them. It represents the Jews in the land, encompassing and including Jerusalem. That's what Judah prophetically represents. While Ephraim or Israel represents the Jews outside the land. Remember, he sends Judah ultimately to go get Israel and the rest of them who are outside the precincts of Joseph and Judah when he reveals himself. Very prophetically significant. And they're passed by Midianites, Gentiles, yes, merchantmen. So there's value. There's value in this crucifixion. And they drew and lifted him up out of the pit and sold Joseph to the hand of the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. It's a redemptive metal. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now look at the very bottom part of the slide in front of you. And it's a quote from Acts 26. That Christ should suffer and that he should first rise from the dead. And what happens after he rises from the dead? Remember Jonah? He was vomited out after three days to enlighten the Gentiles. So they lifted him out and brought him to Egypt. This is a crucifixion by the hand. Yes, the Midianites and Ishmaelites, Jew and Gentile partook of it, but the idea is coming from Judah. It is a Jewish idea. 
And it's one that's going to benefit light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to have to, of course, identify with his death and, death and resurrection again, which is why he's brought to the house of the prison where the butler and the baker are. Um, for time's sake, I think we have to move past this. This is just about the prophecy that Brother Mansfield goes into when making merchandise of a man. Actually, that comes from the law, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 27, so that when Peter uses it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, he's describing a heretical doctrine of false teachers that has very significant consequences. And it's actually taken from the account of Christ again with Joseph. It's really making merchandise after the unjust fall of another man. It's really making merchandise by somehow negating the principles of the atonement. But we don't have time to go into that in detail. So they took Joseph. Look at the, the rich doctrine here, brothers and sisters. It's confirming all the things we know doctrine. You can't have the doctrine wrong and rightly understand the type. You cannot understand the type if you have wrong doctrine. They marry perfectly. And notice what it says. They kill the kid of the goat and they dipped it, they dipped the coat in the blood. This is the coat that the father gave him. So I asked this elder brother, this brother David Perrin, I said, doesn't know what I'm doing. With all these questions I asked him, who does Judah represent? What does a coat represent? Well, it represents nature, it depends. It's a clothing, can represent our nature. What does blood represent? What's a redeeming value of atonement? The coat represents the nature of sin's flesh. They killed him. Christ took on our nature, as we well know. But they killed the kid of the goat, which is used for the sin offering, in the law, same reference, and they dipped his coat in it. Because, and we won't go into this in detail, we've covered this before, he personally benefited from his own sacrifice. He personally benefited from his own sacrifice. Part of him wearing that coat as the firstborn is that he was the firstborn from among the dead. Not just his position of exaltation, I will make him higher than the kings of the earth, but he was the firstborn from among the dead. And they brought it to their father, saying, we found this coat, and we don't know whether it's your son's coat or not. We don't know whether it's your son's coat or not. And the father endorses it. It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Now, there's a suggestion later on that he knew, Jacob knew. And it aligns the evil beast with these sons. Because a beast 
and an evil beast is men of moral corruption, void of conscience of guilt. You know how it's used in scripture. The fought with beast at Ephesus, so on, evil beasts, so on, Titus, Jude, you know the references. These were the evil beast of Jewry, and that term is reserved for the most wicked among men. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused. Can a carnal man, a host of them, 5,000 of them, 70,000 carnal men, can they comfort a spiritual man? And he said, I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. And his father wept. It's the weeping over Israel. When is the grave used prophetically, brothers and sisters? This is Jacob. It is Israel in their present state. It is used in Hosea 13. You know the scriptural reference. It is talking about the national death and that Yahweh will ultimately redeem them from that death and from that grave. It's used again in Ezekiel 37 when they are restored and resurrected as a nation, when he sees the bones of the house of Israel and he says, I will cause you to come up out of the graves and bring you back into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am Yahweh, O my people, and I brought you out of the graves. And my spirit, not just of life, it's the spirit of truth, will enter into you and you will live. And I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. The grave is Israel buried nationally among the Gentiles. This is Jacob in a national sense, corresponding with the son crucified in an individual sense. And I've shown this slide before, brothers and sisters, and you know it where both Israel as a nation, left side of your screen is called Yahweh's firstborn. You get that in Exodus 4. You know that, of course, Christ is called Yahweh's firstborn. That he's called out of Egypt, that literally at his birth, later, Christ is called out of Egypt, Matthew chapter 2. He's called Yahweh's servant, the nation. Christ individually, of course, in Isaiah 49, is called Yahweh's servant. Both cut off by the Romans. Both the death of them brought the light to the Gentiles, both millennially and literally, prophetically, rose up after three days. It is the correspondence of the man Israel and the nation Israel. And there is a complete concert between the two and a harmony. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. They sold him into Egypt. So he's purchased. He's sold by the Jews. He's purchased by the Gentiles. He's sold by Judah and his brethren. And he's purchased by the Gentiles. What did Paul say? 
seeing you put this far from you and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And you know the pattern from Acts 14 on. Romans 10. Moses saith, I provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, by foolish nation, the Egyptians. You and I. I will anger you. Isaiah is very bold when he said, I will be found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that didn't even ask after me. The Egyptians. You and I, brothers and sisters, because Judah and his brethren sold Christ and we bought him up. So we'll conclude with this reference, brothers and sisters. We don't have time. We may just, in conversation afterwards, go through chapter 38. Where it's very interesting, the two sons have come forth. One supplants the other. It's the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant. It is the typical significance. And I'm sorry, this will be five studies, I believe. God willing. But you have to go through it in a very systematic, chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse way. It is the typical significance of Joseph's life. This is now the third pioneer quote, brothers and sisters. That alone warrants it being presented in such detail in the book of Genesis. It's Brother H.P. Mansfield. Died back in 1987. This fact argues to the divine inspiration of the Bible. The story of Joseph, therefore, is both literal, and it is, a literal narration of the facts, but it's also a typical foreshadowing of the life of Messiah. It is very detailed and complete in that regard. What's he talking about? He's talking about the time. And a typical foreshadowing of the life of the Messiah, it is very detailed and complete in that regard. How many doctrines did we address in the first class? The Abrahamic covenant, verse one, the generations, the first four, Jude in the land, the principles of the atonement, the coat and the blood of the goat upon it, the resurrection, the selling of Judah, the purchasing of the jet. Those are just off the, just immediately. The doctrinal riches that come from this. Even in death, Joseph foreshadowed the Messiah. For it became incumbent upon the children of Israel to carry with them his coffin containing his lifeless body through their whole journey in the wilderness under the mosaic. Now, you know I've added those words myself. But I do think that is extremely significant. Implanted in the land by Joshua but carried as a very heavy burden in death under the mosaic ecclesia in the wilderness. Thus, they bear the tokens of the death and ultimate resurrection of Joseph. So this is my point, brothers and sisters, in closing, that brethren from past generations encouraged a disciplined study of the details of the literal history 
so they could discover the specific doctrine within the parabolic prophecy. We often, I've done this many times myself, retreat and revert to just a practical application when we start this process and it becomes too difficult. I know I've done it. I had to go back and revise a lot of notes. Or we satisfy ourselves with a general overview of saying, we've heard many people say, well, Joseph is a type of Christ. Well, he is. But let's break it down verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And then it's called, which I believe, brothers and sisters, is an unbiblical term, a Bible echo. It's something that the world picked up very quickly and then ultimately moved to the brotherhood. What's well, a Bible echo? It's not really committal saying that it's a type. It's just a, that's an inference to something that happened before. It's a type. Don't be afraid to say it like Brother Carter, like Brother Mansfield, like Brother Roberts, like Brother Thomas, all the ones that went before us. It is a type. It is a parable of a life of a man that foreshadows the life of another, and it's very detailed for that purpose. So brothers and sisters, we'll leave it there, and God willing, pick up next week in the second phase of his life, because we're now going to consider him in the house of the Egyptians. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen